Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of our holiness heroes of the past was none other than L.W. Barbie. This sermon was preached at Seabreeze Camp Meeting in Hope Sound, Florida back in 1986, and he titles it, Great Grace Was Upon Them All. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. find a lesson for this afternoon in the Acts of the Apostles, reading in chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. Would you stand for the reading of the lesson? That will give you a little rest for a few moments. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed were his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You may be seated. Our Heavenly Father, wilt thou be pleased to continue to meet with us in this Wednesday afternoon service? Thou dost know that this unworthy preacher feels totally inadequate within myself. We cannot accomplish a thing that's worth the time and worth the while unless we have that peculiar help from heaven. So, Father, will you be pleased for a few minutes to give this preacher clarity of thought and freedom of speech and, above everything, unction of soul and help your servant to communicate some precious truth for a few minutes. And we'll humbly give thee the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There's one statement of truth in this brief lesson that I have just read to you that I want to hold up for special emphasis for just a few minutes. And the latter, that's the latter part of verse 33. And great grace was upon them all. Not just grace, but great grace was upon them all. What the Bible has to say about the grace of God certainly very emphatically emphasizes its importance in the whole plan of the whole scheme of redemption. The grace of God is an integral part of God's character. 
And I believe always that it's inseparable from his great love and his great mercy. Have you ever thought how far you'd have to go back to find the origin, the beginning of the grace of God? Have to go back farther than your time of conviction. Do you know how far you have to go back to find the origin of God's grace? Even back beyond the days of creation. There is such a thing as, there was such a thing as pre-creation grace. Because I read in the Bible that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, Lamb that was slain from the very foundation of the world. So God had you in mind and me in mind even before we were created. That's what I call pre-creation grace. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world before the mud seals of this old world was laid. Before God spoke this world into existence, there was an expression of the triune God by giving this jewel of heaven as our blessed necessary sacrifice. And then there is what I call creation grace. Because after God had created this world and all therein, the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea, everything within this world before he created man, then the triune God said, let us make man in our own image and in our own likeness. Now, friend, friends, when God did that, he was bestowing upon mankind a favor that was not given to any other of his great creation. That's what I call creation grace. Pre-creation grace, then creation grace. Giving to man something he never gave to any other that he created. We read in the Old Testament scriptures about Enoch walking with God. And was not, God took him. Now, when Enoch walked with God, he actually fulfilled the very purpose for which God created man in his own likeness and in his own image. You know the reason God created you in his likeness? The loving heart of God wanted someone he could fellowship, someone he could walk with, talk with, communicate to. That's the reason he created you and me in his own likeness and in his own image. Then that is what the theologians call prevenient grace. That is the Spirit of God working on the heart and the mind of the sinner, preparing that person for old-fashioned evangelical repentance. Wonder how many of you people know anything about old-fashioned conviction. Would you vote? I know one thing, if you never knew prevenient grace, that is the grace of conviction for sin, you're still in your sins. You cannot get a person to forsake his sins until he gets sick of sin. Oh, brother, sister, you don't have to tease and beg and plead to get people to turn loose the thing that is wrong if you can just get them to the place where they're sick of it. Now, that's prevenient grace, that grace that makes you just disgusted with yourself and sick of yourself and sick of sin. Maybe some of you have heard me give this illustration, but I think it bears repeating. Back many years ago, I was on the way to Enid, Oklahoma for the conference camp of the Enid Conference. My wife and I and the singer and his wife traveling from the same part of the country from the state of South Carolina to Oklahoma. It was swelteringly hot weather. And sometimes when the weather is very, very hot, I don't have a ravenous appetite for something hot. 
I felt like it, if I could just get a hold of a cold, refreshing dish, it would be best. And so finally, we found an eating place where I could park that car and trailer, and we went in. And I opened up the menu, and as I recall, about the first thing that I remember seeing on the menu were the words, shrimp salad. Well, I knew that would be a cold dish, and I, I like seafood, so I ordered me a big bowl of shrimp salad. And you know, I enjoyed that shrimp salad when it was going down, but not when it was a coming up. Whew, my, I can almost feel that sickness now, just talking about it. Well, you know, for, I wasn't many miles down the way after eating that shrimp salad until I felt something like that big old butterfly doing like that in the pit of my stomach. I had a great big old trailer, and they didn't have the big interstates like we have now. They didn't have wide shoulders, you know, where you could park a truck or a car, but I got that trailer off the highway the best I could. I had to. And I opened the door of that car, and I rolled out there, and brother, sister, I was so sick, I just about felt like I'd die. You know what? I haven't wanted any shrimp salad from that day to this. Don't be surprised. For years, all I had to do was go into a restaurant, open up the menu, and see the word shrimp salad. I could feel the butterflies going again. Whew. Now, I reckon that's a kind of a poor illustration. Makes, makes some of you feel like almost excusing yourself and leaving the service. Please don't. <laughs> I won't dwell on that long. But I believe old-fashioned conviction, prevenient grace of God will do that to you. It'll make you so sick of sin, it won't be hard to turn it loose. And I'm going to be frank with you and honest with you. I'm not seeing many cases of old-fashioned health care conviction in these days. What about you, ministers? You seeing much of it? I'll just be honest. I don't see much of it, brother. That's the reason they come to the altar and pray a little prayer and peep through their fingers, never miss a crack on the gum, and get up and go back, and you don't see anything of them for weeks, and they're still not saved. Oh, I don't believe that's conviction. No, sir. I reckon the greatest load of old-fashioned healthcare conviction I've seen on any person, realized on any person, was not in the United States. It was in the land of Korea a few years ago. I was standing in front of the apartment building where we owned an apartment as a parsonage, Faith Mission did, rather. Brother Budenseek and I were standing there, and right just a few feet away was a little Korean brother, very small man. And uh, we got in a conversation with him and uh, got acquainted with him, and Brother Budenseek invited him to the li Lifeline meeting that was to begin that night. The Lifeline Church, pastored by our spirit-filled, very able national chairman, Brother Chet. Well, we learned this man was a retired colonel of the Korean Air Force, Colonel Hardong. Well, he had an excuse, like most people said, well, well sometimes I've got some other place to go tonight, and so he went his way. But after he left us, Almighty God got such a hook in that man's heart that when we got the Lifeline Church, there was Colonel Hardong already there. My, that's refreshing. I could stand a lot of that. And you know who was the first one at the altar when this preacher gave his message through the interpreter? Colonel Hardong was right there at that altar. He sought the Lord, but it didn't get through. 
Well, what did he do, preacher? Leave and then never see him again? Oh, no, he was back the next night. And when I gave the invitation, he was the first one at the altar. He didn't get through. What did he do? Came back the next night. And first one at the altar, night after night, service after service. And when that meeting closed at the Lifeline Church, Colonel Hardong still didn't have the victory. I went to another church in the Seoul area, and there was Colonel Hardong. And I gave the message, the first message in that meeting, and he was the first one at the altar. Let me tell you, folks, I, he had old-fashioned hell scare conviction, provenient grace. And he sought God night after night and service after service and this meeting and that meeting and the other meeting. And blessed be God, before I packed my duds to leave Seoul Korea to come back to the States, Colonel Hardong was a Christian. Hallelujah. Woo! Glory to God. He said, I wish you wouldn't scream out like that. It makes me nervous. Well, I, I, I'm sorry, but it helped my nerves. It did something for me. Oh, my, I wish we could see more people under the uh, real deluge of conviction like Colonel Hardon. Well, what's happened to him? He's going strong. He's a man of means. He's a man of some measure of wealth. He's a retired colonel. He, he, he had to retire because of his health. They took him back into government service as a civilian, and he stands tall enough in the government that a few years ago, when about 15 or 16 high-ranking officials of the Korean government was killed by an explosion over there in, in Thailand, you remember? Well, Colonel Hardong, that Sunday afternoon, he didn't get there that Sunday night, the closing night of the media, because he stands tall enough in government circles that he was among the few uh, officials that were called in for a conference after that tragedy took place. You know, there were a lot of big churches in Korea would like to have Colonel Hardong as a member. But you know what he's done? He's cast his lot with the Lifeline Church. <laughs> Amen. I'm talking about real convenient grace, the grace of conviction. We've, we have lived to see the day when uh, actually people do not seem to have as much of God in professing to be saved and sanctified that some people back yonder had during the days of conviction. I'll tell you one thing, if we had more people that had that old-fashioned hell-scare conviction that the Holy Ghost brings upon our heart, you don't have to sit up half the night and sing, I can, I will, I do believe, while they're hanging over altar saying, I can't and I won't and I don't. I just don't have time to wear myself out for fellas just going to just hang over the altar like a wet sack, hang on the back fence. I kind of feel like the late bulldog Charlie Wyman expressed it. A fella just hanging there, you know, and they couldn't get a cheap out of him, and he wouldn't pray, and he wouldn't put forth an effort to seek God. And he, they said, well, brother, uh, the pastor, someone said, well, I reckon we'll just better rise and just keep praying for the And he, the fellow looked up and said, will you pray one more prayer for me? Brother Wyman said, yes. Bowed his head and said, I'll lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my life to keep. <laughs> he prayed that prayer, I'll lay me down to sleep. He called, That's what he was going to do anyway, just sleep. Oh, brother. You know, here's one thing that I think we ought to realize. And that is, we can't blame the person out there in the world for not having conviction especially if he ever gets around the people of God. He's responsible for not going to church whether to preach the truth, yes. But let me tell you, the blame for not seeing much old-fashioned conviction, we must lay that blame at the doors of the church-going world. For the Bible says when he, the Holy Ghost, has come, he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. 
We're to be blamed for not having enough of God to bring conviction. And the Bible has a lot to say about the grace of God. Pre-creation grace, creation grace, prevenient grace, and then thank God, saving grace that makes us new creatures in Christ, makes us members of the heavenly family. And then there is sanctifying grace that takes that multi-headed monster, the carnal nature out and fills you with divine love. Then there's keeping grace, keeps us from backsliding. There's loving grace, enable you to love your enemies. There's forgiving grace, regardless of how much dirt they've done, you can forgive them. There's suffering grace, there's giving grace and receiving grace. There's prosperity grace and there's poverty grace. Brother Barbie, I'd rather have prosperity grace than poverty grace. Well, I'll tell you, if you've got prosperity grace, that same grace is also poverty grace. Well, what in the world do you mean by that, Brother Barbie? Would you stay awake and I'll tell you. If a person has prosperity grace, it's the grace that enables him to have more than the other person without his becoming proud. Are you still here? And if he gets to the place where he loses his wealth and he's poverty-stricken, then he's got poverty grace if he's God's child. And, and, and that means he has grace to keep him from being critical or discouraged when he has less than the other fellow. Now, come on. If I was one of those black preachers right here, I'd say, come on, talk back to me, children. Talk back to me. Amen. All kinds of grace. Then there is standing grace. I wonder how many of you folks have standing grace. You know what kind of grace that is? It enables you to stand for some things and stand against some things. You can't stand for the right unless you stand against the wrong. A person is supposed to hate iniquity and love righteousness, and you can't have one without having the other. And you can't lose one without losing the other. I believe a balanced Bible salvation embraces two things. It embraces the positive and it embraces the negative as well. When a person has nothing but the negative, then uh, he, he could be a Pharisee or a legalist. If he has nothing but the negative, but if he has nothing but the positive, he's a sickening compromiser. Come on, you're not asleep or you got your eyes sleeping while your eyes are open. I just don't believe in anything negative. If you find the negative wire that wires this building and jerk the negative wire loose, wouldn't have a light burning. That's all you have to do is just disconnect the negative and you have no power to this building. Now I want to tell you, when you just get rid of all of the negatives and don't have any negative aspects in your religion, you don't have any power. The light's gone out. Grace to stand against the wrong and stand for the right. There's working grace that saves you from being lazy. There's talking grace enabling you to speak up for Jesus. And then there's silence grace. What kind of grace is that, preacher? Grace to make you keep your mouth shut when you ought not to be talking. How many has got silence grace? And then there's worshiping grace and fighting grace and living grace and shouting grace. How many has got shouting grace? Are some people so listless and lifeless and dead, I doubt they'd shout if God just spoke to them audibly and told them to shout. Shouting grace, dying grace, and glorifying grace. Well, that's the introduction. Let's see how long I have to preach. 
Now, in the text, reference is made to another very special kind of grace. Great grace was upon them all. Now, I would not be dogmatic because I have been mistaken a time or two. I was mistaken once when I was right when I uh, thought I was wrong. But uh, I would not be dogmatic, but I believe in my own heart that this statement, the, that great grace was upon them, refers to Pentecost. I believe it takes us back to Pentecost. It's significant to me that this statement was never made before Pentecost. You don't find any reference to great grace until Pentecost. And this was soon after Pentecost when it said that great grace was upon them all. You know, the church had a task. The church had a mission to fill. And our Heavenly Father knew that they wouldn't be equipped to carry out that mission unless they had something more than they had. And they tarried until Pentecost was fully come and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Their hearts were made pure. They had great grace. All right, let's go back then to Pentecost and see what kind of grace, grace, great grace is. Because beginning at Pentecost, there was a difference in the church. On and on and on, as long as they lived and served, there was a difference in their lives, a difference in their service. What kind of great grace? What kind of grace is great grace? Well, we'll look back to Pentecost. Great grace was the grace of heart purity. Now, I know this is a simple truth, but it's a truth that's important and it needs to be preached and preached and re-preached and re-preached. Did you know there's a great deal of misplaced emphasis in regards to Pentecost? The world is full of it. Misplaced emphasis relative to Pentecost. While there's a great host of people and they're growing by leaps and bounds all over the world that all those people can say, and say some of them are good people. Now, I don't share the philosophy of some people when they speak about the charismatic movement that believes in speaking in tongues that put them all in one group that all of them are of the devil and all of them, I just can't do that. I don't feel like it does credit for me to just simply sign them all to hell. I believe in spite of the fact it's erroneous doctrine and a dangerous error, I believe that in the midst of some of them, there are some good people and when we recognize that, we can be, uh, and, and be charitable, recognize that they're full of error, but yet John Wesley said this, many people will get to heaven without the knowledge of many truths, but none will get there without love. And if you find a person that's full of error, if he's got enough of God to have divine love, he'll get to heaven. But there are some people, all they can see is speaking in tongues. And then they're even erroneous about that. It wasn't babbling, it was a language. But the real central truth of Pentecost is heart purity. There's that apostle Peter, you know, the one that was so cowardly and timid that when he was accused of being a follower of Jesus, he just shook like a leaf in the wind and finally cursed and swore and denied that he was a follower of the master. But after Pentecost, I'll tell you that jellyfish bone was taken out of him and some heavenly steel was put in him. 18 years after Pentecost, 
Now, if a person has been sanctified, filled with the Holy Ghost, and been blazing by holy fire for 18 years, and he's been out there in the thick of the battle, he's been tested and tried, I think that person should be one that could give us a real good, safe report as to what Pentecost meant. Well, 18 years after Pentecost, they had a council meeting in Jerusalem, and they had met there to discuss the fact that God was bringing the Gentiles into the kingdom. And in that council meeting, the apostle Peter took the stand. And here's what the apostle Peter said in Acts chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as it did unto us. Now listen, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Hallelujah. Brother, I'll tell you, I believe we get to the crux of the whole matter when we say Pentecost meant purity of heart. That's putting first things first. Oh, my, how much we could say about the desirability of heart purity. We'd be much further up the road as even a conservative holiness movement if all of our people knew heart purity. We wouldn't have so many schisms and, and, and so many divisions and, and people do little clicks and things if all had pure hearts. We'd be further up the road. Yes, heart purity is something exceedingly desirable. It'll take that thing out that causes splits. It'll take that thing out that causes confusion. It'll take that thing out that causes people to be a troublemaker, a breaker of the peace instead of a keeper of the peace. Come on, folks, don't look at me like that. It's a desirable experience. Listen, folks, when our Heavenly Father wanted to hold up something in the Old Testament dispensation as a symbol or something that represented the fullness of the blessing or the inheritance of his people, what did he do? Well, he didn't hold up swamps or some infested jungle full of fever and wild animals. What was Israel's inheritance? A land that flowed with milk and honey. Something good, something attractive. Brother, sister, let me tell you our inheritance in this dispensation is not something undesirable. It is something beautiful. It is something wonderful. It's something to be desired. Not something to run from, but thank God, something to run toward. I believe heart purity is so desirable it justifies desperation on your part to be sure you have it. And I don't believe any person ever gets heart purity without getting desperate. You're not going to get rid of that old carnal nature. You bring that carnal nature to a place of crucifixion. The carnal nature is going to struggle, going to put up a struggle, put up a fight to exist. Yes, it will. If you ever, if you got rid of carnality somewhere back there, you got desperate. And if you were carnal this afternoon, if you ever do get rid of carnality, it'll be because you got desperate about it. You don't come to the altar, kneel on one knee, and never miss a crack on your gum. And, uh, and peep around at the people. No, sir, you get desperate. I'm not talking about physical desperation. I worked with a fellow in a camp meeting years ago as a Princeton preacher, E.W. Black of North Carolina, up at the Fairmount, Indiana camp. Brother Golden, I believe you were in that camp, weren't you, when the three B's were there, Baker, Barbie, and Black? Well, Brother Black, uh, I believe in that camp meeting, uh, told about a man that was, uh, he pastored, said he was calling one day and went to this fellow's home, and the fellow said, knew his brother black and those come in brother black and that fellow was going through all sorts of strenuous exercises ew black said man what are you trying to do he said i'm trying to get sanctified 
going through all kind of strenuous exercises. Well, now, I'm not talking about physical exercise. I'm not talking about physical desperation. But brother, sister, when a person really gets a pure heart, some way or another, they became desperate in their laying hold of the promise of God and bringing that multi-headed monster, the carnal nature, to a place of crucifixion. I like to see people get, don't you like to see people get desperate? I was preaching at Stonebury Camp some years ago and I was preaching on heart purity and just as soon as I quit preaching, I didn't have time to ask for a song of invitation. A man jumped out in the, up in the, into the aisle and started running down the aisle toward the altar and he shouted out as he came running to the altar, he shouted out, Preacher, I've had my foot in the aisle for the last 30 minutes waiting for you to quit preaching so I can start seeking the experience. Uh, I'd like to see him get the foot out of the aisle. Preaching over at Houghton camp some years ago, and my co-laborer gave this incident, something in his, in his own ministry. He said he was holding a meeting in Washington, Pennsylvania. And in connection with that meeting, he was preaching over the radio every morning. That was part of the revival effort. And uh, there was a woman, a Presbyterian sister that lived 150 miles from Washington, Pennsylvania, had her radio tuned to that very station that that evangelist was preaching over. And he was preaching that morning on purity of heart. And he was a masterful preacher in explaining the two works of grace and proving it with the scriptures. There's some people that have to have those doctrinal messages to even let them give them a little light, the fact there is deliverance. And this Presbyterian woman was going about doing housework, but soon as she caught on to what that preacher was saying, she quit doing housework, and she snuggled up real close to that radio and drank that truth in and because she was hearing there was a deliverance from that old thing that had been giving her trouble. And as soon as that fella got through preaching on heart purity, that lady ran and got a little suitcase in the house and a big suitcase and quickly filled it full of clothes. And she went downtown and got on the bus and rode 150 miles to get to that meeting in Washington, Pennsylvania. The evangelist said he was up preaching that night when she arrived. And she just politely put those two suitcases down in the back of the church and walked down the aisle and fell in the altar and began to pray for God to sanctify her heart. Didn't wait for him to quit preaching. Oh, I like that. My, I'd feel like having a running spell. Somebody got hunger enough right now to come. Amen. Get desperate about it. Put forth a desperate effort. Ever what you need to do to get that thing out of your heart. Praise the Lord. Yes. Great grace is the grace of purity. The grace of heart purity. What else is it? Well, great grace, according to Pentecost, was the grace of power. Oh, brother, I'm feeling better now. I'm glad you got to that because I like to hear people talk about power. I was feeling a little bit ill at ease when you were talking about that old carnal nature and the need of a pure heart, but I'm feeling good now you're talking about power. Well, some people have a misconception as to what kind of power it was. What is Pentecostal power? Well, let me tell you what it's not first. It's not power to handle serpents. You know, in civilized, well, I start to say civilized America, I don't know, somehow I think we're losing our civilized state in America, a lot of places. But anyway, occasionally, even yet in this enlightened age, you can pick up a newspaper and there, right in the headlines, are someone handling rattlesnakes to prove they have God. <laughs> Doesn't prove to me they have the Holy Ghost, prove to me something like it up here. I handle serpents. I'm gonna tell you how I handle them. I started out the back door where I was living some years ago and there was a poisonous reptile coming up the back steps to meet me. 
Well, all at once I decided I didn't want to go, didn't want to go to the backyard by the way of the back steps for reasons better known to myself. So I went to the backyard by the way of the front door. And when I got in the backyard, there was a boat oar leaning against the back of the house. And I took a hold of that boat oar and my, I handled that snake. I did such a good job and no one else had to handle him after that. I handle snakes, the only way I handle them is with a long stick and the longer the stick, the better I feel. Oh, it's not a power to handle serpents. It's not a, let me tell you something else. It's not a power to heal bodies either. That's not Pentecostal power. Why, well, some of them heal the sick before Pentecost. Don't you believe in, in, in divine healing? I surely do. But you don't have to go to Enid, Oklahoma, uh, I mean, Tuss, Oklahoma to get it. In fact, if you go there, I'm afraid you're going to miss it. Poor, poor people, pitiful people that uh, put faith in the idea that a man had the healing power in his right hand. If he did, why did he spend millions of dollars building a hospital? I think that's a waste of money. If he had it in his right hand, well, he could just simply, um, you know, heal everybody he came in contact with and save the doctor bill or the hospital bill. He didn't have the healing power in his right hand no more than I got my big toe. He said, aren't you afraid to talk that way? No, I'm not afraid. Are you still here? Everybody wake, raise your hand. I want to see. Amen. It's not power to handle serpents, not power to handle fire. That is literal fire. It's not power uh, to uh, do any of these sensational things. What kind of power is it? Well, putting first things first, Pentecostal power is power that enables a person to live a consistent, beautiful, victorious life in this present world. That's what you need. Praise God, you keep victory where you voted in and out. Some people say, well, I can keep victory from voted in, but my, look out when you vote them out. Keep victory when you, where you voted up or down. Amen. Well, people get the idea, you know, because they want to change and, and uh, they don't get reelected. Why, they don't elect you for life. And they didn't vote you out, they just didn't vote you back in. Power to keep sweet when the pressure is on. <laughs> Amen. The grace of God that hath appeared to all men, teaching us to denying ungodliness and word of lust that we should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. That's Pentecostal power. Amen. Power to live right. Power to keep the victory. And power to be a witness for Jesus. Now, not only witness for him, but be a witness. Some people don't see the difference, but a person, maybe you, if you couldn't speak a word, if you absolutely lost your voice, you could still be a witness. And if you are not a witness in heart, does no good to witness in words. 
Oh my, I would to God people would somehow manage to not lose that thrill of witnessing for Jesus. The thrill of witnessing to people about the grace of God. You lose that thrill, you've lost something important. Uh, it's up in Virginia. Let's see, I can't even think of the name of that little town now, but uh, I had to go to the supermarket and a brother, uh, well, he's somewhere, he may be in this audience this afternoon. I've seen him here in the services, member of the church. He gave me some little tracks about the size of little business calling cards. And it had in red ink the words, have you been saved through the blood of Christ? Gave me a stack of them. Well, I went to the grocery store just a few miles away to get some groceries. And I was standing there at the cash register and the people might come in line to pay for their groceries. And I, I thought about those tracks. So I gave this lady, as I gave her the money for my bill, I gave her one of those little tracks. Well, she smilingly acknowledged the receiving of the track and I got my groceries and, uh, and I went on outside and about the time I was in the car and about to drive away, I'll tell you that door came open, left swinging on its hinges and that girl came a running out and running up to the car and she said, I, I, I just want to tell you. The answer is yes. She didn't want me to get away until she witnessed that the answer was yes, that her sins been covered with the blood of Christ. <laughs> I'll tell you that made my day. She just didn't want me to get away without her witnessing the fact that yes was the answer. Wow, they tried to stop the disciples from witnessing. They whipped them, they put their feet in stock, they put them in jail, beat their backs until the back was raw and blood running down their backs, said, don't you witness anymore in the name of Jesus. You know what the answer was? We cannot help but do it. Seem like we can help it, can't we? Power to witness for Jesus. Power to suffer rather than compromise with a gainsaying word. Oh, my, the drift that's on. Isn't it heart rendering? Isn't it heartbreaking? The drift that's on today. Friends, I mean this from the deep of my heart. If I could take the, even the conservative holiness movement and bring it back to what it was as I saw it 35 or 40 years ago, I'd be willing to have my arm severed at my shoulder. The purity, the power, the fire. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can, if we just mind God, we can have the revivals now like we used to have them. Amen. I want to hurry on. I don't want to hold you much longer here. What is great grace? Well, great grace was the grace of spiritual fullness. Say, are you full this afternoon? I'm not talking about your dinner you ate. Are you full? God wills that his children be full of him. Not just have a little of him, but he wants us to be full of him. On the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Ghost. The grace of spiritual fullness. The Bible has a lot to say about spiritual fullness. There was Barnabas, that man that was so big hearted, so dedicated, he sold all of his possessions and laid the price at the apostles' feet. You know what was said about him? It's, we are told there 
that he was full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And right away in the same verse says, and much people was added to the Lord. You give us more people that has that kind of a spiritual fullness, there'll be more people added to the Lord. Spiritual fullness. There was Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. It was said of Stephen, he was full of faith and power. The Bible speaks of the fullness of joy. It speaks of being full of mercy and full assurance and filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, we're missing it, my friends, if we're not serving out of a full heart. In fact, I believe we can go further than that. I believe God has made provision and he wills that we serve him out of an overflowing heart. Jesus said, if any man will come unto me and drink, says there will be a river in him. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You know, Jesus is an example of serving his father out of an overflowing fullness. He was so full of heavenly power that uh, on one occasion there was a woman that was sick and emaciated, her health was gone, and she had suffered many things from many physicians, but she saw Jesus. And the thought came to her like a burning coal of fire in her heart. Oh, he's so full. If I can just get close enough and touch the hem of his garment, I shall be whole. And she did, and she was. Serving, you know, we're serving God either out of a full overflowing heart or we're serving out of a fast diminishing supply. Which is it with you? I know this much, friends. We do not make a redemptive impact on our fellow man unless we're serving out of an overflow. I forget whether it was uh, Moody or Spurgeon, one of those two great evangelists of yesteryears, put it this way, that love for God may be likened to an upper vessel and love for our fellow man to a lower vessel that protrudes out from the upper vessel. And when this upper vessel representing love for God is filled to overflow, then the under vessel is filled that represents love to our fellow man. The lower vessel gets none until the upper vessel overflows. And that's when we begin to make an impact on our fellow man. Oh, too many times we're serving God. I'm talking about us conservative holiness people. Too many times we're serving God from a fast diminishing supply instead of out of an overflowing heart. Oh, that's when we'll make people hungry. That's when we'll make an impact on the lost world. They feel like we've got some, for, we've got enough for ourselves and enough to spare. Too many times I'm afraid we leave the impression like I've seen in, uh, in uh, camp meeting cafeterias at times. See, I've been going to camp meetings for half a century now and, I, and most of them serve, you know, cafeteria style. And let me tell you an experience I've seen and had. Uh, when the ladies behind the serving counters, they begin to serve and those big old vessels are just filled to overflow with good, delicious food. My, how cheerful they look. Oh, they're so glad to serve you. And, and they reach down to get a big spoonful of food, you know, and why well, they're serving out of an overflowing supply, so they just give you a big helping. That's when I like to be there. But I've seen it other times, it was just the reverse. The line was still long and they were scraping the bottom 
And there's an apprehensive worried look on the face of the serving ladies. They began to look back, wonder if any more is coming, you know. And then they look at that growing line. And then when they get a spoonful of food, they shake half of it off before it gets to your tray. Wasn't very long I had that experience. Well, I'm afraid we impress the world like that sometimes. We leave the impression that we're serving out of a fast diminishing supply. We don't have enough for ourselves. Oh, God, have mercy and help us. There's a hungry world out there. But we're going to have to have overflowing hearts if we impress them for Jesus. Bubbling over. Hallelujah. Oh, I'll tell you, there's a very pitiful drag on the church today. Pitiful drag. I wonder if you belong to that group. I find them right in old-fashioned camp meetings. Had a friend one Sunday morning going down the street and someone said, Jack, where are you going? He said, I'm going to the drag race. Huh? Yeah. Man, I thought you were a Christian. I am. You a Christian and you go to drag races? said, yeah. But Jack, this is Sunday. You don't go to drag races on Sunday, do you? He said, yeah. said, Jack, where is the drag race today? He said, at my church. He said, they drag in every Sunday morning and race out when it's over. They drag in every Sunday night and they race out when it's over. They drag in every Wednesday night for prayer meeting, but they race out when it's over. God's got something better than that for his people. Amen. If you come to this camp meeting dry and listless and powerless, oh, let God fill you up. If I feel another flash like that, I'm going to have me a running spell. Glory to God. See, I'm having to stick by right close to this thing here because they don't have that little uh, remote one to put on me. And, and, and uh, I, if I say anything, I want you to hear it. Oh, God, save us from this listless, dry, dead, draggy experience. Let's have enough God to make people hungry. What do you say? Let them know it thrills you to be a Christian. What does it take to really bless you? Say, well, I'm praying every once in a while. I hear an orator give a great oration, and I get inspired, and I get blessed. Is that what it takes? Oh, I tell you, uh, sometimes a, a person can just sing and just lift me, and, and that's when I get blessed. Well, I'll tell you what it takes to bless me. Just begin to think about how wonderful it is to be a child of God. Woo! Glory to God. Amen. Just begin to think how wonderful it is to be a member of the family of God. I was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I was just sitting there like you're sitting out there, and I began to muse, and the fire began to burn, and I began to thought, think how wonderful it is to be a child of God, a member of the heavenly family, and all heaven seemed to strike my soul, and I find myself coming out between those pews and running down the aisle like a Comanche. What? No one preaching, no one singing, just thinking how wonderful it is to be a Christian. Whew, glory to God. Hallelujah. Got the best thing in all the world, and they just drag around, listless and lifeless. Great grace is a grace of spiritual fullness, filled to overflow. Say, when's the last time you got blessed? Lady up in Pennsylvania, someone asked her that. She was one of those Pennsylvania Dutch people. She said, bless God just now, just now. That's really right up to the tick of the clock. 
Hey, but I don't know. Some people, you know, they profess to be saved and sanctified for 30 years, seven, maybe 40 years, and never have an overflowing blessing. You know, if I feel this so full that I couldn't fill it with any more, it was as full as you could get it. How far do you think I could take that full cup without spilling some? You know, I wouldn't, I'd hate for my life to depend on going down that aisle to the back of the building. If it was so full, it wouldn't hold anymore. I would hate for my life to depend on going that far without spilling some accidentally. And you feel with the spirit 30 years and never been blessed accidentally? Why, you ought to have a spillover accidentally by now. <laughs> Amen, Lord, give us some heavenly accidents. Glory to God. See, well, I tell you, I don't, I don't believe in emotions. I don't believe in any sense in being emotional. Well, I don't believe in any sense in some kind. And I'll say right away, without any reservation, if your shout's going to sound like a skeleton having a chill on a tin roof, I want you to be quiet. That'd make me extremely nervous. So well, how are you going to talk and you tell when a uh, demonstration is sense to it when there's no sense to it? Well, I'll give you a guideline. If you can harmonize the demonstration with that which has caused that demonstration, it makes sense. And if you cannot harmonize the demonstration with that which has caused it, it doesn't make sense. Is that as clear as mud to you? Well, I'll try to clear it up a little bit. Let me illustrate. If I were going down the highway in that old 73 Chrysler jalopy of mine that I pulled my trailer with, and uh, a chicken should run across the highway, and I do my best to steer that car so I wouldn't run over that chicken, but in spite of all of my efforts, I run over that chicken, and I look back, and the old chickens are flopping around with a broken neck, and the feathers are flying, and I park my car, and I go back and watch that chicken as he kicks his last, and I begin to pull what little hair I've got out, uh, left out, and begin to wring my hands, and say, oh, this is going to drive me crazy. I've killed a chicken. You know what you say? Why, you say, if that's going to drive you crazy, you don't have to take your lunch with you. You're almost already there anyway wouldn't make any sense would it but if I were going down the highway and reached a kind of a blind spot there there was a truck or a car parked there and a little child ran across the highway a little five or six year old child and I did my best to miss that child putting on the brakes and trying to maneuver the car but in spite of my efforts that car runs over that child I park the car go back and pick up a precious lifeless form lay that lifeless form down and begin to wring my hands and weep saying oh I can never get over this it wouldn't bring the child back but if I began to weep and mourn it would make sense you can harmonize the demonstration with what has caused the demonstration let's just look at it from another angle there's a big league game on ha huh. the bases are loaded there's that fella, he winds up, you know, to let go of that ball. And that fella there at the home plate, he hits that ball, he knocks a home run, which means four points for that side because the bases were loaded. And my, you know what, what the crowd does, they go crazy. My, they scream, they yell, they whistle, throw a 25 or $30, $40 hat, never to see it again, don't care if they never see it again. What happened? Nothing. Somebody picked up a stick, hit a ball, and threw the stick down and ran. That's all. My, my, I, you know, I'm, I'm surprised we can be so quiet about the best thing in all the universe. 
sit around like knots on a log, hardly get a grunt out of you. My, 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 look what Jesus Christ did for us. I'll tell you, friends, thank God he went to back for me. I was down low and in sin and iniquity and bound and fettered on the way to hell. But Jesus Christ went to back for me. And thank God, ever since he did, I've been on a home stretch going toward home. Glory to God forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. All right. Great grace was also the grace of spiritual intoxication. When's the last time I've been drunk? And brother, that sounds pretty rough. Well, I'm still inside the Bible. On the day of Pentecost, when this great grace came upon the church, they were so thrilled, they were so filled, they were so overcome by this mighty grace that the people looking on said, these folks are drunk on wine. Now, I don't believe they were accused of being drunk because of something ridiculous they did or something mean they did or something ugly they did. No, I believe because they were just overwhelmed with the the joy of the Lord. When's the last time anybody accused you of being a little tipsy? Not drunk, but just a little tipsy, huh? We are tame. We are too tame. We're living in a drunken world. Seems like the whole world's drunk on something. Pleasure, sex, making money. The whole world's drunk on something. And let me tell you, God wants his church intoxicated on heavenly wine. I tell you, I would to God somebody would tamper with the winery doors of heaven and get the doors wide open till every last one of us get spiritually drunk before this place is, uh, before this meeting's over. You know, there are some uh, characteristics of uh, intoxication, even earthly intoxication, that carries over as far as uh, it's applicable uh, into the realm of the spiritual. You know, the Bible says, Be not drunk on wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And actually, earthly wine or earthly intoxicant is the devil's counterfeit of the heavenly intoxicant. You know, uh, the reason I want all of us to just be really uh, intoxicated on the heavenly wine, did you know when a person's intoxicated, he's not easily hurt? No, he's not easily hurt if he's intoxicated. You let a fellow that's intoxicated, he really gets the feeling, if he gets in a fight, he could come out of that fight bleeding like a stuck hog. Someone say, John, are you hurt? You know what he'll say? He'll wipe the blood out of his eyes, say, no, I ain't hurt. Where are they? Let me at him. He hadn't felt a pain yet. Oh, God, give us some people in the churches so filled with the Spirit. They're not whimpering, whining babies and easily hurt. Talk about having martyr's blood flowing in your veins and standing the pressures uh, that we may have to face in the future. Some people can't even face a little crooked finger and and just someone talking about them a little bit. Easily hurt. And then something else about intoxication. Uh, You never see a stingy drunk. When a person intoxicated, he may be as poor as Job's turkey. And someone said that turkey was so poor, he had to lean against the fence to gobble. Be as poor as Job's turkey, but let me tell you, he feels rich when he's intoxicated. Come on, fellas. Come on, fellas. Have one on me. Yes, 
Back years ago, not too long after I was converted, I had to have a little operation, a tonsillectomy. I was broke. Were you ever broke? I was broke. Well, my brother uh, Jesse, four years my senior, was given the strong drink in those days, and he came around. Boy, he had enough of him. He was a feeling it. He was feeling rich. He said, oh, honey, you broke a heart. And he pulled out two of the biggest $1 bills I think I ever saw. That's when you could buy more than the sack with a dollar. You mean you took two $1 bills from a drunk brother? Uh-huh. He might buy more drink with See, I had something else to do with that $2. He gave me the $2 and I accepted him, but the only thing about it, I'd have been better off if he had just taken his leave and gone on. Because he hung around and talked and talked and talked and talked till he sobered up and said, give me those $2 back. And I will tell you when it's hard to get an offering to support the cause of God, it's because we've sobered up too much. Amen. I will tell you, spiritual intoxication will loose the purse strings. It'll save you from being an old dry skin flint. Are you still here, huh? All right, I'm going right on to a close here. The great grace is the grace of, that makes us more than a conqueror through him that loved us. My, before Pentecost, they were fussing about who's going to be the greatest, and that was just betrayed and denied, and all oh, just a bunch of children, easily defeated. But thank God, after Pentecost, after this great grace came, they were more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him that loved them. Oh, how we need a marching army like that today. Not just children in the faith, but more than conquerors. Someone said um, to be more than a conqueror is like a train, an engine that pulls, uh, say, a hundred boxcars up a mountain and not only has enough steam to get those cars to the top of the mountain, but enough steam left to blow the whistle. Hey, man, do you have that kind of experience that you're more than a conqueror through him that loved you? I've met people on the mission field that would put some of us to everlasting shame, the way of their courage and their devotion. I think about Brother Mingelstub Christos that's now in a university in uh, Kentucky taking a course in business administration. In Ethiopia, he was a purchasing agent for the Ethiopian Airlines, a very intelligent man. I think maybe he came down here to a camp meeting one time, but very wonderful fellow. Uh, he was the Gideon man for Addis Ababa. After the communists took over, there were some false charges trumped up against him because, you know, the communists erases anyone with intelligence. He was a very intelligent man, a good man. He spent seven months in a communist prison in Addis Ababa. Well, now had Brother Mingostub been able to just stay there and just keep his faith and not succumb to the pressure and not recant, that would have been being a conqueror. But he wasn't satisfied at just being a conqueror. He believed a Christian ought to be more than a conqueror. So as, a, as a, a Gideon man, he had a lot of New Testaments in his house. And he would have starved to death had his wife not brought him a meal every day. They don't feed them. They, they'd starve if they didn't have a friend to feed you. She brought me a meal to him in a little basket, and uh, she didn't get close enough to converse with him, but from a distance one day, he got her attention and did something like this. And she thought that he was waving, so she waved back. He shook his head, and she caught on. Five New Testaments next time you bring my dinner. At the risk of her life, and at the risk of his life, they smuggled 
60 New Testaments into that communist prison. When he was being interrogated, four on this side of the table and four communist interrogators on the other side facing each one being interrogated. When the interrogator began to question Brother Mingostub, God gave him so much help, so much of the anointing of the Spirit, so much power, until the rest of them gave attention to Mingostub. The other interrogators stopped talking. All of them fixed their eyes upon Mingostub as he told about that glorious encounter he had with Jesus Christ, how God has saved him. He said, I want to be a blessing and a help to my country, but God comes first. And why God comes first? And after the season of interrogation was over, they took the others out and almost beat them to death, but not a finger was laid on Mingostub. They took him back to his cell, and then separately and privately, they made their way to the cell, those communist guards and officials, and said, would you tell us more about this encounter you had with Jesus? Behind the prison bars, the communist prison, those seven months smuggled 60 New Testaments into the prison and saw 19 bright conversions, some of them officials and guards. That's what I call being more than a conqueror. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the fire.